It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. This is Carrie Gillen. I'm a host on New Books and Language, part of the New Books Network. I'm also the co-host of the Vocal Fries podcast. Today I'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Murchia about her book, Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. Today we have Dr. Jennifer Murchia, who's a historian of American political rhetoric, associate professor of communication at Texas A&M University, and a contributing editor for Zocalo Public Square. She's also the leading authority on Trump's rhetoric, according to Jonathan Talove, and she's the author of Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump, published by Texas A&M University Press, coming out June 15th, 2020. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, I uh, genuinely enjoyed reading this book, even though, as you say in your preface, it will make you angry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) I mean, it's about Trump. How could it not? (laughs) That's exactly right. Did you at any time throw it down while you read it? Because that's what I really want to know. Um, no, but you know, like I, I'm an avid reader of the news, so it's yes, it's a lot of things all at once. But I don't think anything truly shocked me, except for one quote which you tweeted about earlier this week <laughs> um, about the woman who said, "We know his goal is to MAGA. It's on his hat." <laughs> It's the greatest quote in the whole book. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is because it's so perfect. (laughs) I mean, right? It is self-evident to them. It's on his hat. That's what he's going to do. He's going to make America great again. Yeah. Um, And it's one of the reasons why I chose the book cover I did. So the book cover is um, the red hat. And instead of saying make America great again, it says demagogue for president. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, I thought experiment, you know, what would it have been like if he had, <laughs> had that on his hat <laughs> in advertising? Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, it was just, it was just the perfect encapsulation of actually, yeah, your entire book. So well done. Okay. So let's begin with what is political rhetoric and why does it matter? So that's, wow, big question. Um, Political (laughs) rhetoric is how political figures, citizens, the media, how they use language. I mean, that's, I guess, the most simple way to put it. Um, I tend to look at um, issues of power. Um, So I'm really interested in citizenship and democracy, like, um, and particularly why we think we have a democracy when we don't and how that happened. Um, I'm also really interested in like political heroes and 
when we um, constitute citizens as heroes or presidents or demagogues, how that works and why. Um, so different questions like that. Okay, that's really fascinating. Um, I I knew it existed as a field, but it never occurred to me that, of course, someone would be like, be able to use these tools to study someone like Trump. Um, and it, I really enjoyed reading your book for that reason, because I liked how you carved up so there's different segments of the of the electorate, or maybe it's the same segment, but different features that they have, distressing, polarized, frustrated. And then you provide examples of all the strategies he's, he uses. Um, and it really appealed to me because as a linguist, I look at language and I look at the features of language and I carve them up in these ways. And so anyway, I just really enjoyed how you um, structured this book. Thank you. I've had people say that um, the terminology is really useful for them, particularly in talking about um, Trump's use of language, you know, with students and um, maybe even Trump supporters, that, you know, it gives them something concrete. And then I've had other people say that, um, you know, it's sort of comforting to know that, you know, like we're onto that. <laughs> we've, we've known about these strategies for uh, eons, <laughs> yeah. you know, for hundreds of years and um, thousands of years. And, um, you know, they're things that we're prepared to deal with if, if we can recognize them. And so really the object of the book is to help people recognize them. Yes. And I think you do a really good job of it because you give so many amazing examples that are very concrete and very easy to see. Okay, here's here's what he's doing and here's why it's working. So yeah. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so why did you want to write this book in particular? Well, I didn't plan to write a book about Trump. Um, I thought my next book was going to be about like nationalism or something. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, as I wrote in the preface, I kind of got um, sucked into the Trump business because of uh, the New York Times. I was trying to finish an essay that I had literally started almost a decade earlier about demagogues and demagoguery. And in that essay, I was really interested in like why we would accuse someone of being a demagogue and the relationship between democracy and demagogues. And, you know, this idea that like a leader of the people doesn't have to be a misleader of the people, that like somebody should emerge from the people to defend the people's interests. And, you know, so sort of sorting out like, how a democracy um, could function and how demagogues can function and those kinds of questions. Um, and I couldn't finish that essay because I knew that there was going to be, like based on the other work that I had been doing about the American presidency, I knew that there was going to be something like a post-rhetorical demagogue, someone who uses spectacle and public relations and direct communication with the electorate and we just didn't have that yet. Like that person hadn't emerged. And then Trump started his campaign and almost immediately people start calling him a demagogue. So I was paying attention to his campaign and, and interested in it, but I wasn't planning to write a book about it. Um, but then, you know, Trump kept running for president <laughs> and, <laughs> and eventually got the nomination. And so by the summer of early summer of 2016, you know, my friends were like, you know, I don't know why you're trying to write a nationalism book right now, Jen. <laughs> why don't you write a book about Trump? And I was like, actually, yeah, that's what I should be doing. So that's how I ended up writing this book. And I was really lucky that um, 
you know, I knew an editor at the Texas A&M University Press, which is my university, and um, and and he was willing to just sort of take a chance on this book. I wanted to write it in a public scholarship voice and not, you know, make it a purely academic book because mm-hmm. I wanted it to be really accessible. Um, and he thought that was a good plan and really just let me do what I wanted. So that was really amazing. Yeah, no, that's really great. You bring up demagogue and you do talk about this, what a demagogue actually is. So can you tell us, yeah, what is a demagogue and if is Trump Again, demagogue. <laughs> yeah. So um, a demagogue is a leader of the people. Like if you look up the translation of the Greek, it's just a leader of the people. So that's neutral. Um, and if you look it up in the OED, you'll see that there's two definitions. And, you know, I use this throughout my book. The first one is, you know, either neutral or heroic, like positive. Um, And that says that it's a leader of the people who defends the rights of the people against the other parts of the state. Um, And then the second version is the one that we're more familiar with, which is more of a misleader of the people or a dangerous demagogue. And that's someone who uses polarizing propaganda for their own ends. So I try to explain how Donald Trump ran explicitly as a demagogue. Um, he was a hero who um, was going to defend his people's interests against the other parts of the state that he, you know, labeled as corrupt. Um, and, and he was that for his followers. He's absolutely still that for his followers. He's a heroic demagogue. Um, and then, of course, for everyone else, the people who he separated from his good people through polarizing appeals, um, you know, he's a dangerous demagogue. He's someone who weaponizes rhetoric for his own gain. Right. You also uh, bring up that somebody, I can't remember who it was now, called him a proto-fascist. Is there a difference between a demagogue, a, at least in the bad sense of demagogue, and proto-fascist? And if if there is a difference, which one is he? Yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> um so... This is, you know what, I laugh, but it's tricky to sort out. Um, And Mm -hmm. that's why I kind of laugh. So um, demagoguery, dangerous demagoguery is certainly a feature of fascism. Um, You know, but, you know, if you you pay attention to um, Umberto Eco's Ur Fascism, like the eternal fascism, what it has in common, like certain appeals that Trump uses are the same appeals that are used by fascists. Um, uh, So there's that. Um, But then at the same time, you know, it's that spectacle. So Trump is an authoritarian, but he's also, you know, a comedian and he's entertaining. So he's part entertainer and part authoritarian. And it makes it difficult because of that um, to really decipher whether he actually means it. Like, is Trump Mm -hmm. really a fascist or is he just pretending to be a fascist? Is he just, you know, this character you know, that that runs for president and enacts the presidency that appears to be fascist, um, but is really just playing a role. And that's the thing that I find so tricky um, is, is that Trump is so slippery and ironic that he's hard to actually nail down for anything, um, which is, again, another reason why I tried to really be careful and like chronicle all of these things that he said in his, you know, in his campaign um, to really just sort of like show exactly what it was so that we can take a clear and like objective look at it. Um, there's almost 900 end notes to the book. It's like a hundred <laughs> pages of notes. It's ridiculous. 
Um, but that's because, you know, it will show your work, right? Like yeah. I wanted to really prove what my point was. And, and so hopefully I did that. Yeah, I, I definitely got the point. It's very, <laughs> <laughs> it's very clear. <laughs> um, yeah, that, so it's true. Like he is a comedian and, and um, he sometimes is actually funny, like not just to his supporters, but to the rest of us. And it's, it kind of makes me feel ill <laughs> when he makes me laugh, but you, you see like the appeal of him and it's, it is very scary. Oh, he has really great comedic timing. He yes. is really good with an audience, uh, much better than he is on teleprompter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and particularly when he's um, making fun of or, you know, exposing people that you don't like for their mm-hmm. hypocrisy, then you want to like cheer him on, you know, yeah. you want to, you enjoy that, you know, and that's part of his appeal for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you spend a lot of time studying his speeches, interviews, tweets, which congratulations. I don't know if I could handle it. (laughs) Um, And you found these six rhetorical strategies, which you talk about in your book. Um, Maybe the the one I think that's probably the most interesting to me is uh, paralypsis. So can you describe what paralypsis is? Yeah, this paralypsis is everyone's favorite. <laughs> I've been talking about this for four years now, and everybody loves paralypsis the most. Um, and you know, it's actually a really great example of of how Trump um, uses language very strategically. And so, I I actually like this example too because um, you know a lot of people will be like, "Oh, Trump is an idiot. He doesn't really know what he's doing. Like you're giving him too much credit." Um, you know how do we know he really knows? And paralypses is the way. So um, I translate it sort of colloquially as I'm not saying, I'm just saying mm-hmm. um, as throughout the book. Uh, but the technical you know, definition is to leave to the side, right? So you mention something while you at the same time say, but we won't mention that. <laughs> we'll leave that to the side. Um, and so one way that Trump does it is with retweets. So he'll retweet content and amplify it and I give examples of him retweeting conspiracy, of white nationalist propaganda, of, um, you know, accusations against his opponents, all kinds of, you know, bad stuff to retweet. And then if the journalist would ask him about it and say, hey, you retweeted this terrible thing, he'd be like, well, I didn't tweet it. I retweeted it, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what do I know? I, you know, do you, you retweet someone, they turn out to be a white nationalist. Who knows? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and so he does that so that he can't be held accountable. He'll, he'll, there's lots of examples in the book of that, but, you know, he'll say, I don't want to say this, but, you know, and then he'll say it. Um, he'll say you know, I shouldn't say this to you, but I'm going to say it, you know, and, and anyway, so he'll say things over and over and over again while he's saying, I'm not saying this. And um, it's a way to avoid accountability. And I love it as an example, because he tells you that he realizes that he shouldn't say it. So the the paralypses itself is a strategy, right? The, he does it so often. But the strategy itself tells you that he's aware that he's using a strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reporters who I talk with a lot um, happened on Inauguration Day to be next to one of Trump's ex-wives. And for some reason, and I, I'll never know why, but this reporter um, asked her <laughs> about paralypses. <laughs> 
And, um, you know, he was like, so is it true that that Trump, like, you know, really uses paralipses to get out of trouble? And um, Trump's ex-wife was like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, this is his <laughs> defining. Yeah. She's like, this is what he does. This is how he does it. Um, so and it's ironic, right? So he's saying two things at once. Um, it's very rewarding for his audience because it's funny, um, you know, and so people love to laugh, but also it makes them think that he's telling them the truth, that he is, you know, a, a truth teller, that he speaks this plain truth to them, you know, maybe and only to them. So they have this kind of like secret connection that they get to see the backstage, you know, what Trump really thinks that he wouldn't say the awful truth. Um, so it's super rewarding for Trump. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've had, I think it was your article um, way back when, was it The Cut, where you talked about paralipsis. And that was the first time I had ever heard the word at, or and learned about it. And I realized, oh, that is exactly what he is doing constantly. So yeah, um, yeah, it's a really, it is a really interesting strategy and it's very clever, sadly. Yeah. And I didn't mention this when um, I talked about, you know, sort of the definition of a demagogue, but in my, you know, sort of analysis of how we've accused people of being demagogues and, you know, what would be sort of the worst thing about a dangerous demagogue, um, what I realized, and, and I learned this from a footnote in a translation of Aristotle's politics, um, that the, the real danger for demagogues in ancient Athens was that they were unaccountable. They would take advantage of the fact that anyone could propose a law in the assembly. They would get people to pass the law, and then they wouldn't be the ones that were responsible for the outcome, right? And so that idea of being an irresponsible or unaccountable leader is what I have really sort of clung to in my definition of you know what's really the danger, what's really wrong with demagogues, and um, and so paralipsis is a you know, the quintessential <laughs> demagogic strategy because you can't hold him accountable. He didn't say it. I said I didn't say it. So I'm not saying it. <laughs> but right. he says it. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, um, a lot of the racist and sexist and homophobic stuff that comes out of his, not necessarily from him, but from his um, supporters, they do the same similar thing. Well, he's, he never said it. Right. But he definitely promotes it. Um, can you explain how the Russia, if you're listening, quote is an example of paralipsis? Because I, I've heard that quote so many times and um, it seems straightforward to me that he's asking for help, but you use it as an example of paralipsis. Yeah. So that's, um, to me, an example of him saying and not saying at the same time. Um, and also that sort of comedic, ironic performance, the performative aspect of it that makes it so difficult to actually understand. Um, so if you go back and rewatch him saying it um, in that whole press conference um, earlier, a few minutes earlier in the conference, press conference, he said, you know, yeah, Russia probably hacked. They probably have everything. You know, it's, <laughs> it's clear to me, you know, that, that that's probably what happened. And then, um, you know, he kind of gets an idea in his head and he, he stands up, you know, a little bit straighter. He you know, approaches the microphone, you know, in a very specific way and looks at the camera directly. And he says, Russia, if you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you would be mightily rewarded by our press. And he like does this weird arm gesture. Um, and, 
Then when, of course, everyone freaked out about it, he said, oh, it's just being sarcastic. What? Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's no other way of understanding that. Of course, I wasn't asking Russia for help. I was just being sarcastic. I didn't, you know. So he says and he doesn't say at the same time. And he uses that out of plausible deniability, um, you know, again, throughout his campaign, but specifically on that question. And what I found so interesting um, in that chapter is, you know, I decided that I really wanted to know if Russia was listening. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and there wasn't a great way for me, you know, as a little rhetorical critic to figure that out, except for to look at Russian propaganda. So, you know, I read RT and I read um, oh Sputnik and I, yeah, and I um, was very careful to never accept the cookies. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that matters, but for some reason I was like, don't accept the cookies. Um <laughs> But yeah, so there's really this um, really like amazing and vibrant back and forth where they're quoting each other, they're quoting each other's tweets, they're using Trump's tweets and their stories. Trump is, you know, quoting their content. And, you know, so there's really this reciprocal back and forth relationship, you know, that's just public. I mean, you don't have to have um, any kind of special commission <laughs> to see it. <laughs> um, right. You know, you don't have to do any kind of spy work or anything like that. It was just a part of the public discourse where they were, you know, mutually aiding each other by amplifying one another's content and reaffirming it. Right. And as you mentioned, the Mueller report also showed that um, the R- Russian intelligence did try to break into her accounts right after that. Yeah. The same day. This exact same day. Yeah. 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 So maybe uh, there's so there's five other rhetorical strategies. Do you have a second favorite? Ooh, um, probably. I think <laughs> my second favorite. No one's asked me to rank order them before. Um, <laughs> Just what you want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I think American exceptionalism. The way that Trump uses it is particularly pernicious. So. Um, maybe not, you know, my second favorite, but maybe the second most important one. Um, and the reason why I think it's pernicious is because it really does um, play on Americans like desire for the nation to be great, you know, for American pride and um, the way that he in particular appealed to his um, followers was really about, you know, lifting them up and you can't blame people for you know, realizing that they're in a crappy situation and putting their hopes in somebody. Um, Unfortunately, that somebody was a con man. But, um, you know, to me, that's really pernicious, the way that he took advantage of um, American weakness um, and America's hope to be better and for a better life um, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, of course, you know, it was racist and misogynist and, (laughs) um, you know, authoritarian, which I talk about in great detail. Um, and you know, that's pernicious in a different way. Um, and so, you know, I have really like great relationships with my Republican neighbors who voted for Trump. Um, and, and, you know, they're good people and they weren't trying to be racist or, you know, sexist or whatever, when they voted for him, they, they really believed that he was the kind of leader that America needed and that he could do he could do what others hadn't done. Um, they don't think that now. <laughs> um, well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, but it's sad too, right? Like yeah. they really put their hopes in him. No, that is very sad. 
And yeah, I find that one also very interesting because I am not American. I'm Canadian. So when I first moved to the United States, you know, the American exceptionalism just really struck me. Like I knew it existed from afar, but living here, it's different. Like it's just everywhere. And uh, I, I just, I've never fully understood why it's it's so powerful. But I think actually reading your book um, made it much more clear to me. Like, yeah, there's the sort of the good side of it, like wanting to be a better nation, wanting to be um, like healthier, stronger and all these things. But there's also the dark side, which was more evident to me previously. Yeah. My husband's also a Canadian and he's also befuddled by American exceptionalism. <laughs> <laughs> is a good word for that. Yeah. I think there's Canadian exceptionalism oh, too. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, for sure. there is. Um, mm-hmm. But that's okay. Canadians are great. Um, <laughs> well, mostly. I believe. Don't, don't um, talk to us about uh, the uh, indigenous peoples because then the racism jumps out. But yeah, well, everything's tricky for everybody. Um, but, you know, I think part of like you know, the academic perspective on American exceptionalism is to say America is just different. You know, it has different circumstances, um, you know, whether that's geography or whether that's, you know, extreme individualism or religiosity or whatever it is, you know, there's just a difference in America. Mm -hmm. And so it's exceptional in that way, which isn't great, you know, necessarily. So Trump uses it as greatness unequivocally um, and he uses it as winning unequivocally. Um, so there's that. But then there's also a, a, I don't know, maybe benign, but maybe never, this is maybe never benign version of American exceptionalism that's, you know, like America has this role in the world where, you know, chosen people or country or whatever by God. And, um, you know, we're like the best exemplar of democracy. And so we want to spread that or something. Um, yeah. That motivates people, you know, as a narrative, whether, you know, it's true or good or anything else. I don't know. Um, lots of criticisms can be made <laughs> about that in, in history, but, um, you know, it tends to motivate people and, and maybe towards good ends. So I just feel like, you know, any political leader who takes advantage of that is just exceptionally dirty. <laughs> <laughs> mm, okay. That's interesting. Cause I was going to ask you, um, if there was a way to use these strategies for good, or if they're just so destructive to democracy that they cannot be used. Yeah. So most of the strategies are fallacies, right? Like if Mm -hmm. you were in competitive debate in high school or college and you did an ad hominem attack or ad baculum threat, you know, your opponent would um, flag it and ask the judge to like strike the sentence or whatever, (laughs) Um, you know, there would be some repercussion and maybe you wouldn't be allowed to continue in the debate. So, you know, they're pretty pernicious for democracy. Um, American exceptionalism could maybe go, you know, both ways. Paralypses, you know, if you're doing it in a way that is clear that it's a joke that you're, you know, you're willing to be held accountable for the thing you're saying, you're not saying, um, you know, then I think it's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just depends on the context. And really, I think it's about accountability, you know. So are you accountable for the way you use your words? Uh, one of the things that Trump did repeatedly was to say, you know, the way I talk doesn't matter. <laughs> he would also say, right, that he had the best words and, you know, he was the best <laughs> at, at using language. 
Um, but he would say, like, don't judge me for political correctness. Don't judge me for my, you know, ad hominem attacks or my threats or, you know, any of these strategies that I write about in my book. Um, and he would say, you know, you're just weak. You're just political correctness. You're just trying to control me. It's part of the corruption. Um, you know, you're just a woman. Like he had all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't pay attention to anything that he would say while saying that what he said was the most important thing that anyone's ever said. Um, <laughs> but that's just Trump, right? Like, mm -hmm. so he won't let you hold him accountable. Um, and I think that that's the real problem. Yeah, that's a really good point. So is there a way to hold someone like Trump accountable? Because it seems like he is like you know, Teflon Don is very mm -hmm. slippery. He's super slippery. <laughs> He's super slippery. So yesterday there was a press conference where a reporter said, um, you know, uh, like literally this most softball question, Mr. President, people are worried. Could you say something to make them feel better? <laughs> like, like literally just teeing him up to say something nice to the American people to make them feel better about this crisis. Um, you know, so that he would have a soundbite to put on his news to sort of end probably, you know, his report with something upbeat. And instead, Trump yells at the guy and tells him, you know, he's nasty or whatever, um, uses an ad hominem attack. Mm -hmm. And and that's the, the thing that um, <laughs> that I think makes it difficult to hold Trump accountable, right? Is because even if you're asking him something simple, something easy, um, if he thinks that it goes against what his narrative is or how he's trying to market a situation because his will to market is very strong, um, then he'll just attack you. And so he violates journalistic norms. He violates democratic norms. Um, and he does it in such a way that it changes the dynamics of the situation, right? Um, I mean, it's a spectacle anyway, right? <laughs> the, yeah. the reporter, you know, press conference with Trump is, is going to be a spectacle of a certain kind, um, you know, traditionally. But, um, you know, he violates those rules and he violates them in a way that reporters don't really know how to how to get around it or how to handle it. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah so there's there is no strategy well i mean my strategy is to try to not um control trump so much as it is because i don't think he's controllable no. um, as it is to try to educate the audience for trump's messages so trump only has power because we give him power he only has our attention because we give him our attention mm -hmm. um 
I mean, he's really good at getting our attention. But um, if we, you know, can see clearly and be like, oh, okay, that's an ad hominem. That's an ad baculum. I see why he's doing that. It's not very interesting. Um, you know, you just, you get numb to his strategies. Like he cannot get more outrageous than he is because you just become numb to them as strategies. I can tell you this. <laughs> as someone who watched all of his rallies, all of his press conferences, all of, you know, read all of his tweets, you do become immune over time. You can just recognize them. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I definitely don't react as strongly as I used to. I more often just roll my eyes. The, the, so yeah, the, the, your, that's a nasty question. That's, I think that's the second time he said that in the past like week. Um, it just doesn't have the same feeling as it did when he called uh, Hillary a nasty woman. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sigh. Sigh. Uh. Yeah. What he did um, with Katie Turr like really early in the campaign, I tell that story um, as part of his build the wall you know, thing about mm -hmm. how he was immune to fact checking and just would attack journalists who tried to do that. There's this really super awkward interview with Katie Turr where she's like, so the facts don't back up what you're saying. And he's like, you're lying. <laughs> Sounds good, but you know, that's, you don't have good facts. And he, she's like, no, 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 really. Um, experts say this is not the problem you're making it out to be. Like she tries four or five different ways, um, you know, based on reality. And each time he finds a different way to insult her, um, to undermine her and to just, not answer the question in any legitimate way. And it's, it's super awkward to watch. <laughs> so what should journalists do then? It, because I, it just seems so um, frustrating that they have to ask four times and he keeps getting out of it. Is there, is there a strategy for them? Do you think? Well, one strategy is to not cover him. Um, and that's kind of what Jay Rosen, um, who's a journalism professor at NYU, um, his strategy, his, his advice is, you know, to, recognize the spectacle for what it is and stop giving Trump all the airtime, you know, cover mm. the story from a different way. Don't mm. make Trump the center of the story. Um, and I mean, the sad truth is that Trump um, abuses journalistic norms, right? He knows what the norms are and he takes advantage of them. And so he undermines journalism by taking advantage of journalism. Um, so that's not good. Um, you know, there isn't a really great example of journalists being able to hold him accountable, except for a few times, like uh, David Farenhold um, was able to get him to, you know, give away the money that he promised he was going to give away right. in 2016. Yeah, to the vets. And, um, and, and he was able to do that by putting a lot of pressure on him for the things that Trump was um, trying to, you know, market himself as as being, right? So generous, rich, <laughs> a benefactor to veterans. Um, and he was able to change the narrative. And it's unclear to me if Trump really, um, really succumbed to that change in narrative or if he was trying to change the narrative from other events that were going on in that moment. Um, that made him look even worse and to sort of take this problem on head on um, because it was something that he could address. So at that same time, um, the Trump University scandal was happening and documents were being released that showed that um, 
Trump was a con artist. <laughs> um, and he really didn't want that to be a story. And that should have been the story. Yeah, definitely should have been. A, yeah, it was kind of a blip. It was, uh, and he did that to you, right? He did that yeah. to all of us. <laughs> yeah. Like we didn't pay attention to the story that really could have tanked his campaign if people would have really, really, really followed it. Um, and, you know, he's really good at it, unfortunately. He is really good at it. I hate to give him any credit, but he really is very good. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's really, really good at being a demagogue. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that was one of the things I was going to ask you is, is why vets were the only people who seemed to be able to get to him. But now, yeah, now I understand that's why there was something else going on. So it's too bad because maybe if it was not that, maybe we could get vets <laughs> to be the ones to actually fight back the hardest because everyone loves the vets. Everyone loves the troops. Yeah. But maybe maybe it's not a good strategy, though, because it has other factors. Yeah. And the Trump University scam was so important because it exposed Trump as a con man. But also, like a lot of his supporters were like, well, he's a great businessman. They believed, mm -hmm. you know, the version of Trump from The Apprentice. And if it could yeah. have gotten through to those supporters that, in fact, that was all a con, right? That was all editing that was just a TV show. It wasn't real. Um, you know, that really could have made a difference. Yeah, I, I, I think you're probably right. And it's in the other four fifths of the multiverse. Yeah. <laughs> That's where we are. Not not having Trump as president. <laughs> um, OK, there are so many questions. OK, so. Has he made the political discourse worse? Like, are we trapped inside his world or can we actually escape? I guess you sort of answered this in terms of like, we can just say to ourselves every time he says something ridiculous, oh, that's an ad hominem or whatever. Um, but that's still very individual. Is there something more collective we can do? Yeah. So um, a couple of answers on that. Like we've seen other politicians kind of adopting Trump strategies, um, particularly on the right, but not just on the right, uh, you know, like refusing to be held accountable, not apologizing for things that they've done wrong, or just, you know, ignoring consequences. Um, so we have seen that. But, you know, I'm really sort of surprised, actually, that, <laughs> that um, Joe Biden has succeeded as well as he has um, in the Democratic primary, because he's not using Trump strategies. He's not even really trying to speak directly to an audience. He's not using um, post-rhetorical presidential campaigning strategies at all. He's just using regular old-fashioned presidential rhetoric. And, um, and that seems to have a lot of appeal to people right now. I think, you know, a lot of people are looking for, like, a return to normalcy. And um, so they find Biden comforting. Um, so, you know, I don't think Trump is the future necessarily. That's hopeful. And it's true mm -hmm. that he is doing much better than I thought, too. I I didn't even try to predict what, who was going to be the nominee, but he was way low on my list. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think that his kind of campaign was going to be successful. No, but me neither. Here we, <laughs> here we are. And you're right. I think it is. I think people do want like they want to return to normalcy, whatever that is. And they do find his his style comforting. Um I don't find it as comforting as other people do, but I so I do understand 
why it's comforting for sure. So it's somewhat ironic to read this book in the time of COVID (laughs) (laughs) because everything seems to be falling apart, including maybe Trump, although it's hard to say for sure. Um, Are there any strategies, like, can you see any examples of the the strategies from your book that he's using right now? Uh. (laughs) Ah. Is that too hard? It's okay, we can have to do that. (laughs) Well, to be honest, I have not been paying much attention to him this week because he provides no good information. (laughs) True, true. So, I mean, definitely he used the ad hominem, you know, against a reporter yesterday. Um, definitely he's staging spectacle. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration, you know, all of the things, but yeah, I haven't, um, <laughs> That's I haven't paid much attention to him now. <laughs> yeah, I know it's, he's the, he's the most useless person right now. So yeah, <laughs> he's still getting a lot of attention though. Too much um, attention. Yeah. Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. And it's also, it's also, um, it's also somewhat ironic to read it right now because, you know, public pu- uh, pu- participation is really important at all times. Um, but but a lot of our venues for that are, are squashed right now. Like we can't, you know, gather in large groups and protest what Trump has done because we have to stay inside, especially those of us who are sick, so we don't infect everybody. Um, yeah, so it's just it's 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 distressing to read the book (laughs) when you can't really do that much about anything. Yeah. I apologize for that, but you know, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I mean, this is what authoritarians do, right? Is that they take advantage of a state of exception like this. Um, And we're, we're all a captive audience for him right now. So he loves an audience and he's trying to put on a show. Yeah. Yeah. I, although I have to say, I, Personally, I've been reading more about everywhere else that's dealing with it and how they've how they've dealt with it and what strategies have worked and what haven't. And so, like, I feel like I have gotten less Trump in my life recently, but I am also not his target. Like most of the people who follow him are probably not doing that. So, yeah. Um. So why does it matter that so much? So let's go back to his 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 campaign, because it kind of still really matters, even though he's here. (laughs) Um, I guess I have like two questions about that era. Let's go actually go back back to how pundits and politicians and reporters dealt with him at the time. They didn't really take him seriously. Why, except for Fox News, um, why did they fail to take him seriously? Like, why was it so hard for them? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think part of it is because, um, particularly with New York media, they knew he was a con man. Like yeah. they had been dealing with him for decades, uh, right? You know, this is the guy that would call them two, three times a week to schmooze and you know give him, give them um, rumors, you know, that they could print. This is the guy who would call them again under a different name, a pseudonym, and act like his press agent (laughs) and (laughs) give them different information, right? So John Barron, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so like they were really familiar with Trump. They knew his games. They knew his failures. They knew, you know, what to expect from the guy. And, you know, he had said that he was going to run for president before a few times. And so I think initially it was just like... (laughs) 
yeah, here we are, you know, in Trump Tower and he's, what? He's coming down the escalator and that's <laughs> weird. <laughs> what else would you expect, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think a lot of the early skepticism was just realistic <laughs> and based on the history, you know, that people had with Trump as an individual. Um, and, you know, nobody could have predicted in June of 2015 that people were actually going to think that Trump running for president was a good idea. You know, I think that Trump being on Fox and Friends had really um, given him a kind of loyal following. And I don't think that that was really well understood um, in the mainstream media. Yeah, I certainly didn't understand it. He seemed like a, a clown to me, and I'm not from New York, but I don't know. He just didn't, I did not understand the appeal at all. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why does it matter that so much of the language at his rallies were, was violent, sexist, homophobic, racist? Oh, why does that matter? Yeah. Um, well, you know, so is, there's a couple of things, I guess. One is that um, it provided catharsis for people. You know, people would show up at these rallies and they were frustrated. They were distrustful of elites or established leadership. They were, you know, polarized. They were all of these things. And they had particularly um, felt as though they had been uh, aggrieved, you know, and silenced by political correctness, which was representative to them of all of these other things, corruption and liberal elites and all this stuff. And so, you know, they would go to these rallies and they would just say just terrible, terrible things. Um, and so in a way it provided catharsis for them um, and it connected them to one another. They could see like, we're so powerful. We can use words however we want and no one can stop us. And, you know, it's, you know, sort of like petulant teenagers um, in a way. Um, but it also, you know, obviously was itself polarizing, right? So, you know, the violence and the sexism and, and all of that stuff was in the service of, you know, creating more distrust and reaffirming that distrust and creating more polarization and reaffirming pre-existing polarization and um, taking advantage of frustration to get people to act. So, um, you know, the, the rallies, you know, were, were hugely successful for him. Um, and in part, you know, because they were amplified by the media, so everyone got to see them. But, you know, really for the people who attended them, um, you know, they walked away with a great experience and told all their friends and, you know, they really um, felt at home there. Yes, <laughs> which is also distressing. So how much, how, sorry, how has consuming so much of this content affected you? <laughs> it was rough, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it, especially doing the translations or transcriptions, um, you know, because mm. when you're, you've probably done this work, right? When you're transcribing something, you have to go back and back and back and, you know, replay something a, a, a ton of times to make sure you have it right. And, um, you know, it requires you to really like focus on the per person's mouth and make sure, you know, that <laughs> you have the exact right word. And so, you know, it's kind of a, a nightmare scenario to have to spend your days staring at Trump's mouth <laughs> while he says terrible things. <laughs> His teeth are so weird. I don't understand them. I know. I don't like to, you know, 
make fun of a person, but he did that to himself. He used to have normal teeth. I don't know why. Yeah, it's <laughs> that true. skin color, the hair color, the teeth are weird, you know, so all of that, like it's, you know, it's freaky. Yeah. It is um, and then also, you know, I really had to read a lot of um, like white nationalism stuff. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in those communities online. I spent a lot of time in the manosphere, you know, so yeah. men's rights movements. And, um, you know, in, in doing that really helped me to understand what Trump was doing and like how his supporters were reacting. And, and I mean, really could not have written the book without doing that. Uh, but at the same time, it's hard to shake those frames. You know, you're a linguist, mm. right? So, yeah. um, you know, like they kind of rewired my brain. And so I can see the world through white nationalism, you know, and I can see the world through the manosphere if I want to. And, um, you know, I don't want to, but <laughs> yeah. um, it's hard to lose those frames. So uh, so that was tar- hard too. Yeah. 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 Because you cite a lot of... Um... Stormfront stuff, and I I hadn't really put it together that of course that meant you re- went on there a lot and read it all. I my heart goes out to you. <laughs> yeah, that Andrew Anglin guy from Daily Stormer, he was. Oh, that's it. Yeah. yeah, he's really like I quote him throughout my book because he was really an observer, like an an excellent observer of what Trump was doing. Yeah. So you know, I would watch an interview with Trump doing some things, and I would see certain things, and then I would read his take on it, and I would be like, oh. <laughs> Well, yeah, of course, you know, he was doing these other things too. Um, And so, yeah, I quote him a lot. (laughs) But yeah, it did mean that I had to read all of his things. Yeah, yeah. Yikes. So um, what are you working on now? (laughs) (laughs) My new project is about propaganda. Um which I didn't know a lot about. Um, when I was writing the introduction of my book, uh, I thought I could write this book like super fast and that didn't happen, but I was trying to, I was trying to write it like and have it done before he was inaugurated. So like, but I also didn't know he was going to win. So, um, and that took me by surprise. So, um, I spent like all of winter break, um, of 2015 in my office, like I was the only one on campus and um, I was trying to write this introduction and really trying to understand like what had just happened um, in a way that I could make it make sense and started reading all this, you know, stuff from the 1930s about propaganda. And I was just like, oh, no, <laughs> like, my mind got blown and I was like, oh, no. Um, so I became really interested in that. And um, so I've been teaching a class on propaganda and I've written a couple of like public scholarship things on it. And um, I have a, a book proposal now. Um, so that's my next project. Oh, cool. Well, hopefully I'll have you on again for that project. <laughs> it's got a really great title. Super sweet title. <laughs> Can you tell it? Um, yeah. Okay. I want a drum roll or something. Maybe you could add that later. <laughs> um, it's, called, it's called We, comma, The Propagandists. Nice. Yeah. So it's about how, um, you know, we communicate primarily as propagandists now and that we're all propagandists. And so, you know, it's about how that happened to us and how we're not even aware of it, which is one of the things about propaganda um, and why that's so bad. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's also fascinating. 
I mean, it's obvious that there's lots of propaganda floating around all the time, but um, I want to know. I want to know more. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> awesome. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Ooh. Um. Mm. <laughs> I can't think of anything. Okay. That's um, good. <laughs> I mean, maybe I guess I could talk about like um how Trump's rhetoric violates democratic norms. Maybe sure. that's important. Yes. Um because that's kind of the takeaway of the book, right? Is um what I try to do is I try to like stand behind the standard of what's good for democracy, what's good for like what kind of communication is best for democratic deliberation, for decision making and problem solving and for the stability, you know, of the nation. And um, I take off from um, uh, Ziblatt and Levitsky's How Democracies Die. Mm -hmm. And they have four criteria that they say that historically and around the world authoritarians have used to erode democracy. And um, I use those four and talk about um, how there's a an analog for communication and that Trump violated those same four democratic norms with his language. Um, and so that we're really on solid ground when we call him a dangerous demagogue who weaponizes communication and that, you know, in effect, he attacked the American public sphere in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he attacked America with his weaponized communication. Yeah, he sure did. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I have many more questions I could ask, but I think an hour is good enough. <laughs> Has it been an hour? Wow. Um, Time flies <laughs> when you're talking about Trump. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure it does. Um, well, thank you so much for having me on your program and for reading the book so carefully. I really appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.